Can I? I'm not gonna fuck it up. Shouldn't. As long as you don't bang it. This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. Hello, listeners, and welcome to something slightly different for the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular. During Oscar season this year, after catching up with 2017 in film music and before taking a look at the new slew of nominees from 2018, we're taking a bit of a detour into Oscar nominees from past years. And of course, I can't do this alone. I am accompanied, as always, by my brother, Mr. Scott Butler. Scott, are you ready to dive into the score vault? No, not really. Great, glad to have you along. Uh, We decided for this uh, Look Back Vault episode to uh, select a year out of order. We were originally thinking about going in order from, you know, we started with 2015, the next one back would be 2014, but uh, we encountered a bit of an issue, didn't we? Yeah, the issue was that 2014 included Interstellar and a Johan Johansson score. And two Desplat scores. Not a year made for your sensibilities, no. No, I don't, I don't think so. It was a long, hard slog. And so, the year that we have come up with for this episode is way off in the future, in the year 2000. In the year 2000. Before we start with the nominees for 2000... Uh, Scott, I think we have a little bit of feedback from our last show. Yeah, it turns out that your boyfriend is a huge fan of Dunkirk. Really? This is what you're bringing to me? By hands... I'm bringing to you! Uh, I'm pretty sure I did not bring this man into our house. (laughs) No, I brought this man into our house and into my life... But his his love of Dunkirk, you're, I feel attacked right now. Why, why is this so hard for you to get over? It's feedback from our previous episode. He 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 thought I was unfair to Dunkirk. Oh, he thought he thought you were unfair. He thought we were both unfair in that I just went. He thought we were both a little unfair in that whenever you would rail against Dunkirk, I would just kind of uh, be quiet and smile. Now, to be fair, he said that he likes to listen to Dunkirk while he's reading a book. Yes. So even the most ardent fan of the Dunkirk score that either of us has ever met uses it as something to ignore while he concentrates on something else entirely. Which I'm not sure isn't the best possible use of that dreck. Now, I made the point in the last episode that an argument could be made that Dunkirk was not actually music. That it was, in fact, as you described it, sound design. Okay. But not all sound... While all music is designed sound, not all designed sound is music. Anyway, my final datum that I bring to you is a crossword clue that I saw. It was number 59 down 
It was four letters beginning with a T, and the clue was piece of music. Tone? Tune! Okay. A piece of music is called a tune! Therefore, if you don't have a tune, you don't have the building blocks you need to construct music! No tune means no music, according to the crossword puzzle. Huzzah! I rest my case. As they say in the academic circles, QE motherfucking D motherfucker. According, okay, so this crossword puzzle is your source to invalidate the idea of atonal music? Yes. Such an interesting podcast we have, huh? Aren't you glad you invited me on? Man, Place to Be puts this up on their feed, huh? (laughs) I have happy news, though, because no matter what we're going to say about the Oscar nominees from the year 2000, they all consist of music. That shall be seen. Now that I've determined myself as the arbiter of what is and is not music, I'm going to have to arbitrate on each individual case. Cool, I can't wait. (laughs) The first nominee we're going to consider is one of the heavy hitters of this year, and we have a special guest on the podcast to introduce it. Please welcome Miss Elizabeth Taylor. Thank you very much. Miss Taylor, what is the first nominee we're going to be considering here tonight? It is Gladiator by Hans Zimmer and everyone that Hans Zimmer worked with that year. I have two very important questions about this. Okay. Number one, whatever happened to the guy that composed the score to Gladiator? Number two, can we go and find the guy that composed the score to Gladiator and force him to murder the guy that composed Dunkirk in some sort of ritualistic combat for the control of music scoredom. No, all is already lost. Dunkirk has already been composed. The Batman trilogy has already been composed. All is lost. I'm picturing like Superman 3. Superman versus Clark Kent in a knockdown drag out fight to the death. Hans Zimmer tears open his shirt and it says Blom. <laughs> 
but no, this is before the Dunkirk, before the Batman, before the Bombs. Um, we talk so much about Zimmer on these things, seriously. Uh, but that's because he's so influential, and Gladiator is yet another very influential score of his. I wish it had more influence on him. Well... I did, I did actually think at one point while re-listening to this score that there's an echoing effect, uh, particularly in the homecoming scene where uh, Russell Crowe, spoilers for Gladiator, uh, finds out that his family's been killed and all that. There's an echoing effect that sounded like an early, early, early version of the kind of flapping effect that he used in the Batman scores. I can see that, yeah, a little bit. They're like, like the 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 sort of sound design piece that he used to indicate Elysium. The Elysium stuff was much more uh, the contributions of Lisa Gerard's vocals. Well, I mean the the music for that part, yeah, but there was like a sound effect bit that sort of indicated his sight beyond the veil or his visions beyond the veil or whatever that I could see as being related to the flappy bits from Batman. Yeah, that recurred a couple of times. I mentioned Lisa Gerard's vocals, and that was really the most influential thing about this score, because for years afterward, uh, what came to be called the Wailing Woman, which is not an unproblematic turn of phrase, obviously, was found in many, many, many scores. Not all that many by Zimmer, if I recall correctly, but a lot of imitators, because this score, like the movie, was very, very popular. And of course, aside from that, there are very good reasons for it to be so popular. This is a very thematic score. It's a multi-thematic score. There are a lot of really compelling themes and really good set pieces kind of thrown in throughout. Yeah. I'm perhaps very hard on Hans Zimmer, and part of that is because his recent work has just been so god-awfully, abysmally terrible. But also because I think of him as sort of like what might have been. Because, I mean, 20 years ago he was doing this! This is incredible! This is awesome! This is everything a movie scorer is supposed to fucking be! How did he devolve to where he is now? That is the thing that assaults me every time I listen to some of his newer work. But this Gladiator score is like prime Zimmer from a time when Zimmer was one of my favorite movie composers. This is a prime example of why he became one of my favorite movie composers. It was because of scores like this. And of course, I remember being on the internet at the time that this movie was released and the, and the score became a topic of discussion and a topic of condemnation by the same people who condemn pretty much every Zimmer score. Except the difference is I agree with them usually now. <laughs> <laughs> what could their possible objection be to both this and Dunkirk except that they both use electronic instruments? There is literally no other similarity between them. Uh, the samples get called out a lot. And one of the criticisms that I, that I do understand of this score is the way that Zimmer uses a sampled orchestra in combination with a real orchestra. 
there are times, especially during the battle sequences, where he'll take sampled brass and lay it over a real recording of, of the brass section of the orchestra in a way that's supposed to magnify it, it's supposed to give it a grander scope, but if you know to listen to it and recognize that there are samples in there, it just makes the whole thing sound sampled. Like, like it makes the actual orchestral recording sound cheaper. Yeah, okay, I can... Some of those loud brass sections, yeah, you're right, they do sound kind of cheap, for want of a better term. Which, while it's absolutely a criticism that I understand... I still really like those battle sequences. Yeah, they're incredible. The brilliant idea that he had to base a lot of the action music for those battle sequences on the waltz rhythm. Like, when I was listening to it earlier, I I found myself counting one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. And I have this absurd image in my head of, like, ballroom dancers trying to dance, you know, a traditional waltz and back and forth and forth and back to the tempo of the gladiator waltz-based action sequences. (laughs) Put that on Dancing with the Stars. I'll watch Carl Malone do that. (laughs) The thing is, though, the rhythm draws you into it because you can pick up that rhythm so easily, which is why it fits the dance so well, but... It also draws you in as a listener. It just draws you right into it. Those third beat emphasis is... What's the portal of emphasis? Emphasis. Ah, that sounds like a made-up word. That that strong emphasis every third beat. It just just pulls you right into it. I mean, you know, I guess the filmmakers might like to think that their visuals pulled you into the movie, too. But, I mean, fuck that shit. I don't know. I was listening to a CD. Yeah. I've I've listened to uh, the battle and God, what's the one called in the Colosseum? Something with the barbarians. You forgot the name of Barbarian Horde. The barbarian Horde. Oh my goodness gracious! Okay, well, all right. To be fair, the one I remembered was the battle. <laughs> I've seen people fight CGI tigers a thousand times. Okay, there's only one movie that has it to this score. Yeah, fair, fair. That that Conan reboot ain't shit compared to this. <laughs> yeah, I, I have obviously listened to those tracks far more than I have or will ever watch the movie. I don't think I've seen the movie since, like, 2001 or so when you got the DVD. I'm trying to look for, like, some more specific points that I can make in my notes that I took while listening to this. Yes. But I don't have any more specific points. Every note I took is just, wow, this is good. This track is really good. I love this theme. I love this track. This is awesome. This sounds great. That's all I have written in my notes. <laughs> there are lots of other set-piece cues in this score, though. Zimmer does a couple of killer travel montages, which is something that stands out in a lot of these epic movies, right? Is, you know, when they're going to Egypt or to Zuckabar or Zanzibar or wherever people go in in any of these epic ancient movies. Those montages are very, very, very well scored. There's, you know, the confrontation with, with the Emperor that gets this dense, dense strings. Uh, the patricide scene has some of the densest most dramatic and serious string writing that I think I've heard from Zimmer. Just so, so compelling. 
There are other times with uh, scattered guitar elements thrown in there to remind you that Russell Crowe is supposed to be a Spaniard. <laughs> uh, I believe those were performed by Heotor Pereira, who was someone who was working with Zimmer for a while and then spun off and did some of his own scores. We should mention, also in terms of people who were working with Zimmer, Lisa Gerard didn't just lend her vocals, she also wrote some of the content that she was performing. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Um, and also, Klaus Bedelt had a hand in quite a bit of this score as well. Okay, that doesn't surprise me. So either. when you ask, <laughs> who, who's the person who wrote Gladiator? Klaus Bedelt isn't the person who wrote Gladiator. In any of these instances where Zimmer was working with a lot of the people in the uh, remote control, at the time it was called Media Ventures, family. You know, Zimmer's the boss. And he produces, you know, a lot of the main themes and a lot of the notable set pieces and, and you know, other people get their get their hands on it. Lisa Gerard does some stuff here, Klaus Bedelt does some stuff there. Um, in more recent scores it's been Jeff Zanelli or whoever is at remote control. But Zimmer's still the boss. So you can't just say, We liked this one, oh Klaus Bedelt did it. <laughs> Which I think you might be prone to uh, to leap at as an explanation. Well, he did other scores that were credited to he himself that I quite liked. So, yes, although you know, while he was in the Media Ventures family, it's it was it's kind of the family is going to come together and do this, and you know, Klaus Bedelt is the one who has his name on the contract. You know, I, I know you and I quite like Klaus Bedelt's score for the 2002 Time Machine, but I think, you know, some of the other Media Ventures people also had their hands on that. I think Nick Glennie Smith did a little bit. I don't remember how in the fold Harry Gregson Williams still was at that point, but, you know, it's a family deal a lot of the time. So is that the problem with his recent output? Is that just he's been hiring a lot of really shit people lately? Like, now that the Gregson Williamses and Klaus Bedelt and Ram and Jawadi, and now that they've all moved on to their own careers, the people that he has in-house now are just real shit. And that's why we get shit like Interstellar and Dunkirk. I honestly can't offer an opinion on Interstellar, but anyway. And even at times in Gladiator, for instance, like in, in the track The Streets of Rome... I really felt like you could hear the late 2000s Zimmer sound developing. Really? Yeah, I mean, so, sometimes you can catch, you know, early indications of these things. Because what I think of as the late 2000s Zimmer sound is just noise. So, like, I don't know what you're thinking of. Like, there were parts of that track that didn't have a tune. There were parts of the track where the layering of elements and... The fact that it didn't feature one of the, you know, several themes from the score, if I recall correctly, and instead relied more on that layering of elements to create a whole oral soundscape, you know, I, th I think I really caught a, a little bit of that later sound. Can I just say, as awesome as the main theme is, the one that they use, like, in the middle of the battle and during the Colosseum fight and whatever... I think my favorite theme out of this score is actually the secondary theme. The one that always comes, like, in the next scene, in the wrap-up scene, in the aftermath scene. Not the Now We Are Free theme, but sort of the, almost the B theme to that waltz-timed action cue. The one that always comes in, like, the aftermath. 
That, I think, is my favorite piece of music from this score. I think this is the happiest we've been talking about one of these Oscar scores, hmm? On that happy note, let's move on to our next score for 2000, and that will be Milena by Ennio Morricone. I think I already know what you're going to think of this score, but sock it to me anyway. I think I want to know what you think I think of this. I think that while listening to this, you were probably very bored. You get all the bonus points. (laughs) Really? Because that is my primary... Like, I kind of like... I get the theme that he uses in, like, track one and three, and I actually kind of like the theme in track two and four, but for the vast majority of this score, it just didn't interest me whatsoever. The final note that I took at the very end of the CD is that I have so little to say about this score that it's not even funny. Really? Because a lot of the music is trying to be. I suppose. There, there, There's a lot of... How do I want to put this? This score has Morricone firmly in his comfort zone. I was going to say, like, similar to what you said about Shape of Water, the, the main theme of this is just very Italian to me. Yes, all, all of it is very Italian to me, which is fair enough because it's an Italian movie scored by an Italian man that takes place in Italy. Well, I guess that would fit then. The movie. Good job making it very Italian. The 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 movie. By the way, some of these that I don't know, like I remember a little bit of the plot of Gladiator, even though all these epic movies have so so much plot. But for these movies that I, that I don't really know that much about, like I look up a little bit of, of a plot summary while I'm listening to the score as well. And Milena is a weird, weird movie about a small town in Italy, right when Italy was getting into World War II, where there's this woman in the town who's not really accepted by the townspeople, except this little boy, like, becomes attached to her and starts stalking her, it sounds like, but, you know, it's cute because it's a movie from the 90s, or 2000. Everyone knows the 90s didn't end until sometime in 2001. Yeah, fair, fair. We're still in the long 90s here, yeah. The 90s didn't end until at some point between Election Day, November 2000, and the September 11th attacks. It was somewhere in that time frame that the 90s finally ended. Yes, quite right. 
Um, I don't know when the 2000s became the 2010s. I'm not sure there's an exact date on that. We, we might have to let history decide. It might have been a little early, actually. The 2000s... Was it 2008? It, it may have been the what, 2009 inauguration when the 2000s ended and the 2010s began. It may have been the 2009 inauguration. It may have been the 2007-8 crash. Mm, maybe. Or maybe... Well, you, you could... I don't know if that is, like, when the 2010s began or if that was just, like, the final death throes of the 2000s. I mean, it's absolutely a defining experience for a couple of generations. Um, but but anyway, Milena by Ennio Morricone. <laughs> I heard that's a score. Uh, it very much is. It's a very, very Italian score by a very, very Italian man for a very Italian movie. Well, it fits, at least. So it's it's going to have a lot of very tuneful content. I mean, there are absolutely tunes here to fill your definition. Oh yeah, and there's yeah, there's some you know satisfying enough string writing. A lot of it is taken up in some very very stereotypical European comedy music, which is an acquired taste that I have not acquired. Yeah, a lot of that is the sort of thing I'm thinking of when I when I when I say that I appreciate what this music is doing and it's fine, it just doesn't interest me at all. Yeah, it's it's not something that I've ever really personally warmed to and at times it's something that kind of keeps me from appreciating Morricone in the way that a lot of other people do. I mean, just for just for a lot of a lot of his pieces that I do really love. I mean, he's obviously a legend and a genius and all that. In addition to the fact that he's still scoring movies into his nineties, and he just recently won his first Oscar. <laughs> he got the Lifetime Achievement Award like ten years ago, and then he won an Oscar for a movie a couple of years ago. Yeah, <laughs> I th- I think that might be all we really have on this. I mean, I I, I think we both are in agreement that it's. Decent and inoffensive, but not really our bag. I do like the theme from track two a lot, but on a whole, the score is just sort of there. Yeah. Let's move on to another composer that we talk about a lot on this show, and a score that I know we've both listened to quite a lot, and that will be The Patriot by John Williams. as much as Morricone on Milena, we find John Williams firmly in his comfort zone. This is a very American movie by a very, and a very American score by a very American composer. I suppose so, yes. 
The Patriot as a movie, I think, occupies kind of a strange place for me. Because I think that's either the last or one of the last Mel Gibson movies that I saw before I found out just how much he hates me. Oh, that... (laughs) I mean, if if we want to talk about horrible people associated with these movies, Milena was distributed by Miramax. Well, I was going to try to work in the joke that this movie stars Mel Gibson and Jason Isaacs, better known for their iconic roles, Jason Isaacs as Captain Lorca and Mel Gibson as the racist, sexist, anti-Semitic, unhinged, crazy dude at the traffic stop. You know... For him, that's a passion project, not a role. (laughs) This, yeah, I think this was one of the last Mel Gibson movies. Or was was this before or after Lethal Weapon 4? It was definitely after Lethal Weapon 4. I was trying to remember if it was before or after Payback. Ooh, Payback. I think it's probably after Payback. I think think Payback and Lethal Weapon 4 might have been like 98. I remember reading an article at the time that Mel Gibson was actually offered the role in Gladiator, but decided that he was a little too old for it, and so took the role in The Patriot instead. So so Gladiator decided to go with another Australian? <laughs> yeah, that's a co-winky-dink. The theme to The Patriot is incredible. Some of the best stuff. Yeah. And, you know, John Williams' best stuff could fill up, like... 17 CDs, but this is so good, the theme to this movie. There are many 17 CD sets you can probably buy, yeah. The rest of the score, not as good. It's sort of a one-track CD. Where that track is repeated again at the end. Yeah. Um, There's a track that's named after the movie, and then there's a track that's named after the movie reprise that is sort of identical? It's pretty much identical. There's, like, a few seconds added to the reprise, but it's pretty much identical. Which is in a contrast to the Saving Private Ryan album, in which the first and last tracks were literally identical. You know, this was kind of a thing that Williams did for a while. But, yeah, once you've listened to the track that's named after the movie, you kind of don't need to listen to the rest of the CD. Well, it's a very good summation of um, two of the main themes. Well, the two main themes. And again, it's very, very Americana. Very, very Williams. But I'm not sure how to put this. I kind of feel like it's very, very Williams in a way that he was kind of transitioning away from at this point in his career. Yeah, I was going to... Because this is sort of, for me, this is sort of like the oasis of Williams. Like, between basically Last Crusade and Force Awakens, there isn't a whole lot of Williams stuff that I'm a real big fan of. Like, I think Hook was early 90s, wasn't it? Hook was early 90s, Jurassic Park, Schindler. Oh, Jurassic Park, yeah, okay. Even Jurassic Park 2 has a lot of highlights. I don't know that I've listened to the second one much. But even so, we just named, like, off the top of our heads, like, two or three movies from that 20 to 30 year span? Well, there's also, there, there's a lot of stuff that, that, I, that I like, but less so than his uh, late 70s th- through the 80s output, to be fair, yes. Um, the main theme to Nixon I always enjoy because it, it has the f- same uh, first three notes of Darth Vader's theme for Nixon. <laughs> well, and there was a lot of music in Patriot that, like, a lot of the, like, sort of 
darker stuff in Patriot sounded a lot like the darker stuff he used in Star Wars 2 and 3. Well, I wanted to get into, into a little bit the um, action music, you know, for the for the battle sequences, especially the final confrontation between Mel Gibson and Captain Lorca. Because what I mean when I say that it was a style that Williams was transitioning away from at that point is that the action music for a lot of the big Hollywood films that Williams was doing in that late 90s into the 2000s era all sounds the same to me, to an extent. The Star Wars prequels, pieces of his Harry Potter scores, Minority Report... You can hear it starting to develop a little bit in Jurassic Park 2 at times. A lot of that action music sounds alike to me. But The Patriot does not have that sort of sound in in the battle sequences at all. Those are completely classic Williams in a way that I really, really appreciate going back to it when... You know, he's still in that style to an extent, but of course it's been another 15 to 20 years, so, you know, he's kept developing. But that's still a style that I really appreciate going back to. Like, I'm, just, I'm just... I'm sorry, I'm just laughing at myself. In, in my notes, I, re, I, I referred to the Captain Tavington music as the evil man theme. <laughs> <laughs> you, you mean that little dissonant brass chord whenever he... Uh, remembers the French and Indian War. And then later when he fights Tavington. Wasn't no wasn't there a motif for Tavington and Tavington's dark deeds? <laughs> yes, yes. There, there there was a little there was a little theme for him as well, yeah. I'm just more thinking of that one chord that came up like any time Mel Gibson remembered having done anything wrong in his life. Yeah, that was that was a different thing though. That was sort of a more ethereal feeling thing than just sort of the dark foreboding music for Tavington. A little bit, yeah. In stark contrast, of course, to to the main theme, which is so pulsating and propulsive. Yeah, the main theme of this movie is right up there with like the Superman march and the Star Wars theme. It's just classic Williams main theme. The rest of the movie I find to be kind of more hit and miss. I don't think he uses like, I think he more repeats it than uses it in the way that he did with his Star Wars themes. Well, he does integrate it a little bit. I, I don't know, it just felt so, it just felt off to me somehow. Maybe it's just an entirely subjective thing. It just, it didn't grab me like his use of themes in some of his other better work. And I really love this theme. It's not the theme that I have any sort of disappointment or lack of interest in. I really love this theme, but somehow just the way he used it in the movie didn't grab me the way that he uses his themes in a lot of his other stuff. I suppose, thinking about it, I mean, he he integrates it into the score a few times. I can see what you mean about maybe not varying it enough, if that's what you mean. I think that's kind of what I was referring to when I said he more repeats it than actually works with it. Mm-hmm. Which he, which he does a, a couple of times. I mean, there's the scene where um, the the girl in the movie like recruits the parishioners to kind of join the, the colonial cause and all that. And that has, um, you know, that, that theme kind of rising up uh, throughout. Mm. And then it kind of comes back for, you know the colonial victories and, and, and such, but I see what you mean. Yeah. Uh, there's maybe a little more integration of the love theme, probably. Yeah, I suppose, yeah. 
I remember when this came out, there was some speculation. There were rumors on the internet that the love theme from The Patriot was a rejected theme from The Phantom Menace. Really? That the love theme from The Patriot was originally supposed to be Padme's theme in The Phantom Menace. And that has occurred to me literally every time I've heard this theme. And literally every time I've heard this theme, I've listened to it and gone, that doesn't sound like it fits in Star Wars at all! Not in the least! Like, that does not sound like it fits in, in the Star Wars theme family, even in the way that he extended it in the prequels. Like, I don't see that at all. No, no. Plus, it fits so well with the, like, sort of musical milieu he establishes for the Patriot. Like, you you put all the Patriot music together, and it's a perfect fit within that. Yeah. It doesn't sound at all like something that could have come out of Star Wars. I mean, that's probably just something that someone made up one day, but it's stuck with me ever since. Wow. And now I'm afraid I might have given it to you. <laughs> I do kind of wonder, as a hypothetical, what David Arnold might have done for this movie and what his demo for it might have sounded like. Because this movie was made by uh, Dean Devlin and Roland Emmerich, who had made Godzilla and Independence Day and Stargate, all of which were scored by David Arnold, all of which had good scores by David Arnold. And he did do a demo for The Patriot, and then... Either they decided, that's not the sound we're looking for, let's get the most prominent Americana composer working in movies right now, or they decided, we can get John Williams, so we'll have John Williams do it. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know exactly which one happened there, or what proportion of each, but as a curiosity, I wonder what David Arnold might have done for such an an Americana movie, as opposed to like the adventure sci-fi movies he had previously done for the producers. Oh, that would have been interesting. The uh, Godzilla and Independence Day guy doing the Patriot. I mean, that would have been interesting, I guess. He he did some stuff in the 90s that I like. There's nothing wrong with the David Arnold score. Oh, no, certainly. He never quite retained his cachet as, like, a big Hollywood blockbuster composer after uh, getting rejected for the Patriot, which is interesting as the uh, Devlin and Emmerich movies went on to have ever more disappointing scores by Harold Closer and such. Let's move on to our next stop on this whirlwind tour of the Oscar nominees for the year 2000, Chocolat by Rachel Portman.
Chocolat was, again, if we're talking about horrible people, a uh, Miramax film, made by a lot of the people who'd made The Cider House Rules previously, uh, which was nominated for a slew of Oscars, including Rachel Portman's score. Uh, Rachel Portman was the first woman to win an Oscar for Best Score when she won in the Musical or Comedy Score category in 1996 for Emma. So she was definitely kind of typecast in romantic comedies, romantic dramas, quote-unquote chick flicks, I suppose, for a while. But, you know, she did encompass other things in her career as well, of course. Uh, what do you make of her work on Chocolat? I think I can sum up my experience with Chocolat. I'm just going to butcher that every time I try to say it. Yeah, sure. Say it a different way every I time. Fe- I feel like it might actually be less insulting if I just called the movie Chocolate. Maybe. My experience with this score, I think, could be summed up by the very beginning of it, where I listened to track one and I said, well, this is pretty peppy, it has a good beat, and sounds pretty good. This could be a very enjoyable score. And then I realized, oh wait, track one is a completely unrelated thing that has nothing to do with the rest of the score and wasn't written by Rachel Portman. The first and last tracks on on, on the album, yeah. So that was an immediate downer and the rest of the score didn't pick me back up. I mean, it was fine, I guess. I mean, I'm not gonna drown it in the sink like Dunkirk, but... It just was absolutely nothing that interested me in any way whatsoever. I rather liked the uh, the main title theme. I appreciated that when it reappeared again toward the end of the score. Otherwise, a lot of this kind of flowed over me as well. It's perfectly fine stuff. And again, she's very much in her comfort zone doing her thing. There's a perfectly delightful montage cue in the middle of the score that's... You know, something where a lot of people often shine. But otherwise, you know, it's fairly traditional, inoffensive stuff. This is another movie about a small town in Europe in the past, by the way. So, um, <laughs> I, I believe it's a it's some town in France in the 50s featuring, as long as we're talking about horrible people, Johnny Depp. You know, you, you have perfectly lovely, you know, cute and romantic music... You know, a little bit of stereotypically old-world stuff with the guitar mixed in at times. Again, I think I think we agree, you know, it's, it's fine, it's inoffensive, but not all that impressive. I mean, I assume there must be more to it than I'm hearing as a layman, because this stuff gets nominated for the Academy Award, but, like, even in the same year, Rachel Portman also did The Legend of Bagger Vance, which is miles better than this. That is an opinion I've found in a lot of places, yes. Uh, that I've seen a lot of people agreeing with that. I mean, that movie at least had, like, a really strong theme they kept coming back to. I really liked the theme in that movie. This was just a whole lot of nothing. Yeah, as far as the Oscars go, I think that's basically down to media pushes and where a production company is going to put its resources as far as an Oscar campaign. You know, like I said, this was made by the same people who made the Cider House Rules, which was nominated for a whole bunch of Oscars, and so they're expected to produce nominations again. Aren't the nominations made by people specifically from within that part 
of like that particular union? Like, aren't the nominations for best score specifically voted on by people in the movie score union? I don't know how it worked in 2000 because they changed the rules for the Oscars all the time. Yeah, that's true. The way it works now, I believe is that the music branch votes among all eligible scores, you know, that have been submitted by the movie studios. Submitting them is important. (laughs) Uh, We'll talk about that later. So the the studios submit as many movies as they want to fill out paperwork for, and then the music branch votes among that pool to narrow down to a short list of, like, 15 scores. I believe, is the shortlist that was published this year. And then the entire voting body narrows that down to the five nominees. Okay. I'm pretty sure that's the way it works now. I don't know specifically at any point in time in the past how it's worked. That seems a pretty reasonable way for it to work, honestly. Well, I'm just saying, like, you know, maybe if there's, like, you know... 10,000 members of the Academy voting and, like, 9,900 of them have never scored a movie. They're all, like, sound editors and visual effects people and actors and directors and whatever, and they're voting on scores. They would be subject to this, you know, marketing campaign on behalf of whatever score, but you'd think the actual composers would, like, know what's a good score and what's not and wouldn't be as swayed by a marketing campaign. Uh, maybe? Uh, I'm not sure uh, what the exact pressures are on the different voting bodies. You know, there's probably a lot of studio politics on various levels. While I was looking up reviews of Chocolat to see what other people had thought, I found an interview that Rachel Portman did with Robert Siegel on NPR with an excerpt that I think might be interesting to you. Really? Uh, Siegel asked her, uh, was there a moment when you said, I know I want to be a composer and I want to compose film scores, or were you going to be a composer and film scores were available more readily than symphonies? And Portman says, the latter happened to me. I started writing music when I was about 13 or 14. I decided by the age of 17 quite seriously that that was what I wanted to do. And it was when I was at Oxford that my professor was scathing about writing. Music with melody and harmony. And so I started seeking other music, and I started doing theater music. And then I did a student film while I was there, and it was the film that immediately caught my attention. I thought, this is what I want to do. So, (laughs) uh, actually, I'm quite grateful to that professor, because I now realize that I've always wanted to write music that tells stories. And so he sent me on my path without meaning to. Now... In almost any context, I am totally against this uh, ludicrousness about blaming professors for, you know, ruining the next generation or whatever, or indoctrinating our kids, or however people are complaining about professors in colleges this week. But I thought you might find that an interesting distillation of uh, some of the trends in academic music and, and, and symphonic music and, and, you know, coming into other genres. Why is this man a music professor if he hates music so much? He may not hate music, he may just prefer, you know, more atonal music. You know, things that really stretch the form. Do you ever worry that your tastes are unsophisticated? I worry about that all the time. I'm sure my tastes are unsophisticated. Who gives a fuck? 
really, who are you going to come to for your reviews? Somebody who is trying to make their tastes sound sophisticated, or somebody that's just going to tell you whether something's good or not? I don't know, maybe I'll go to someone who'll validate me. Like, this is something I worry about, like, a lot. And I realize that I'm saying that on a podcast feed, for one. A podcast feed hosted by a wrestling website, for two. You know, (laughs) these are insecurities that come up all the time with literally all of my interests. And I'm interested in what it might be like for someone who doesn't feel those anxieties. For you, it's just, who cares? Yeah. I see. I see. Anyway. Let's move on to our final nominee for Best Original Score for the year 2000. That is Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon by Tan Dunn. Now, Tan Dun was a uh, concert composer, a classical composer in China, but one who had studied music in the U.S., chosen to lend the film what U.S. audiences might consider a more authentic sound, uh, which to my unknowing Western ears, uh, he certainly does. In looking up information about this score, I've seen comments online from people who seem uh, to know a lot more about the structural differences between Eastern and Western music than I do, to the effect that what this score is is kind of a native Chinese tone captured in a way that is Westernized enough to be palatable to Westerners. Hmm. And for that, I think it's very successful. Uh, What do you think of this score? I really like the theme to this movie. Yes. I, th- I think I think it's a great theme. It's in two tracks, at the very beginning and the very end. Everything in the middle kind of leaves me blah. I mean, there's some interesting stuff here and there, but there's nothing in, in the middle there that sort of grabs me, you know? See, I I found a lot of the stuff, even throughout the whole length of the album, quite compelling, actually. All of the um, cello solos by Yo-Yo Ma, even when he's not playing that main theme, still convey this deep sense of longing that is just endlessly compelling to me. I found this score very disappointing, because, like I said, there are two tracks to this score that I've been listening to semi-regularly, like, since 2000. And so, like, starting off, when I first went to listen to this entire CD, I'm like, well, I know there's at least two good tracks in this. And by the time I finished, I'm like, well, there's two good tracks in this. And that was very... I found it very disappointing that the rest of the score didn't live up to the lofty expectations I had 
based on that theme. There were some other pieces that I really liked, though. The uh, the night fight cue features uh, drum work that just escalates and escalates and escalates, which really, really grabbed me. I, I know that sort of escalation without necessarily a thematic payoff doesn't do as much for you. Yeah, I need a payoff at the end. I mean, ramping up is fine, but I mean, what are you ramping up to? I do tend to judge things based on their endings. Even, like, stories, I'll judge a story based on the ending. If an ending is really good, then whatever led up to it gets bonus points because it led up to that really good ending. And if an ending is really bad, then no matter how good the lead-up was, it led up to a disappointment. And the same thing with a musical piece. You know, if you're building and building and building, what are you building to? And maybe you're building to, you know, something that happens visually in the movie. In which case, it's kind of unfair to judge a score based on its CD. But this is where we are. I'm a little more comfortable enjoying the middles of things. Especially film scores where, you know, I can take a track here or a track there. Whatever I like from a given score. I'm pretty sure I did only see the movie once when it was in theaters. But if I, re if I recall correctly, the score was a pretty important part of the movie as well. I mean, it was definitely featured in a lot of scenes. I mean, it, it, like I said, I think I've only seen this movie once in 2000, but, like, as I remember, the score was important in the movie. It did enhance a lot of scenes in the film. Like, it wasn't just, like, meaningless background nothingness. It was a part of the scenes. And every appearance of Yo-Yo Ma just, like, goes right to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the quality of his playing and, and and the deep sense of emotion that that comes through in it is is amazing to me in a lot of contexts. So those are our five nominees for best scorer for two thousand. Which of these do you think should have won? For me, no question by a mile, it's Gladiator. By far the best of these scores. By by way way far. Nothing compares. It is so it is so fascinating to think about an era where you could say that about a Zimmer score compared to a Williams score. I mean, the Patriot was okay. Yeah. It, I mean, I mean, it was. I mean, I guess it's better than okay, but I have higher expectations for a Williams score, frankly. Well, I know you and I are both bigger fans of the Patriot score than most. I mean, I've seen it get almost literally no discussion, basically, since the Oscars were over and it was out of theaters. Yeah, well, I mean, among the Williams oeuvre... Among the, among the Williams oeuvre... It's I not gonna rank high. Okay. Among the Williams oeuvre, I think you and I are bigger fans than, than most who are heavily interested in the Williams oeuvre, and even there, I am comfortable saying it is second tier at most. <laughs> I would say it's second tier at most. He's done eight Star Wars movies, three Indiana Jones, Superman, Jurassic Park, and and and, and, and that's and not even getting into his later era, like all those Steven Spielberg Oscar dramas that he's done. Like, I'm sorry, Patriot is second or third <laughs> tier compared to that. Compared to that body of work, the Patriot is like second or third tier. Yeah, it's good. I like listening to it. I like the theme, but I mean, it doesn't. It, it's not going to rank up there with like the Indiana Jones films or most of the Star Wars films, or you know, 
really big, important scores he did for stuff like Schindler's List or Saving Private Ryan or, you know, even Spielberg's more recent stuff like Lincoln. I'm sorry, all of that stuff is going to come out, come ahead of The Patriot in any look at John Williams' body of work. I mean, The Patriot was fine, it was an enjoyable film, and it's an enjoyable score, but it is not iconic or historically important, or I mean, the movie or the score. And yeah. so many of Williams' other work, both the movie and the score, is iconic and historically important. And The Patriot is neither of those, on either count. So, of course, it's going to get kind of forgotten amongst, you know... For any other composer, it would be a highlight. For any other composer, it would be one of the better things they've ever done. But this is Williams. He's done a hundred things that are better. Yeah, and if Williams did The Patriot this year? Well, even in 2000. Because, <laughs> like I said, I was not a fan of a lot of his 90s stuff. Yeah, I know. A lot of his late 90s stuff, I was not a big fan of. So, like I said, The Patriot is sort of an, an oasis for me of, oh, here's the good Williams thing from that era. Mm-hmm. Now he's recently done those two Star Wars movies, so we know he can turn it on again. But yeah, like I said, it, it would be the greatest score in the career of Nicholas Bertel or Daniel Hart or, you know, Johnny Greenwood or who else is being nominated lately. It would be the great, it would be the best score in their career, but this is Williams. He's done 25 scores that are better. Yeah, that probably about says it. Um, also, certainly in terms of influence going forward for many years, Gladiator was, like you uh, mentioned, it was iconic in terms of influence, in terms of popularity for a long time. Well, at that time, Hans Zimmer was one of very few people really doing electronic music. Like you mentioned some of the controversy about that, but using his electronic stuff as opposed to, like, the London Symphony Orchestra. That was sort of a big deal at the time. Well, he was getting... He was really getting into samples, which uh, were, were not quite in 2000 at the point that they are in 2019, certainly. But he was he was really getting into samples as opposed to out-and-out -out synthesizers, uh, which, which would be what you associate more with a goldsmith of this era. Hmm. Or, you know, through the 80s and 90s. I remember when pop music had their huge controversy over sampling in the 80s and 90s, and so... Yeah. <laughs> and uh, for some people, it persists. <laughs> um, yeah, I, 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 would, I, would I would probably have to agree in terms of influence and in terms of being an iconic work or uh, standing the test of time in the composer's career as well, certainly. And in... in in the career of such an influential composer who's done so many influential scores. The winner that the Academy assigned, I wouldn't really argue with that much either. Uh, they awarded it to Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, which I don't particularly mind. Um, they probably did it more out of a sense of uniqueness. And of course, there's, you know, the whole Academy ad campaign, so who, who can say the influence of, of that kind of thing? But certainly it has the advantage of being unique compared to some of the uh, traditional Hollywood scores that we've talked about, the traditional European score and Zimmer's more, uh, and, and, and Zimmer's work that we've talked about quite extensively. I guess you could argue it's the greater achievement, given everything you said about trying to mash up genres and national musical styles and whatever. Maybe if I was better educated in music, Orthodoxy, I would appreciate it more on that level, but just as a listening experience, 
I prefer Gladiator. Every time we talk about film music, I wish I knew, like, something about music theory. I really ought to learn something at some point, because it's been a long time. All right. So that is it for the nominees and the winner. After a quick break, we will come back with just a few of the other scores from 2000 that we rather liked. So stick with us, and we will be back. consideration paid for by the following. PlaySpeed Nation is Justin Rosero and Chad Campbell here. We want to let you know that we have a ton of great podcasts available to you on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and PlaySpeedNation.com. And we now offer them to you on two great feeds. On the PlaySpeedNation Wrestling feed, we bring you the mothership, the place to be podcast, main event, survey says, Wrestling Warzone, a Monday Night Wars podcast retrospective, no holds barred, Jeff learns wrestling in our monthly pay-per-view reaction shows. On top of that, we're also dipping into the vault, re-releasing the entire catalog of where the big boys play for your enjoyment. And in addition to these full-length shows, we also deliver special network pod blasts on topics old and new. The Place to Be Nation pop feed is loaded with great content, offering such tremendous shows covering the land of pop culture, such as Geek and Sassy, Talk and Pop, the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular, Sunday Groove, PTB in Play, Freak Out Drive-In, Songs with Friends, Looking Forward, Looking Back, and Lucha Undead, as well as a veritable podcast heaven for comics fans with the hard-traveling fanboys, Sellers Points, Conversation Comics, DC Pros Crisis Management, Marvel Age, and Marvel Age Masterclass, plus weekly pod blasts that cover the gamut of comic topics. The feed is also filled with insightful sports content, including the NBA team, This Week in the NFL, and more. And you can find all these current shows plus archives of our past podcasts, including The Kevin Kelly Show, as well by subscribing to both feeds on iTunes. And while there, be sure to rate and leave feedback as well. All of these shows plus others available at PlayStation.com. We cover pro wrestling, sports, movies, comics, in-depth stretch projects, and more. Be sure to support our site by using PlayStation.com forward slash Amazon while doing your online shopping. And download our free PTB Vintage Vault Refresh eBooks via the links on our site. We also want to thank our friends at Bonehead's Wing Bar, ProWrestlingOnly.com, and TheHistoryOfWrestling.com. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr as well. PlaySpation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world.
are back talking about film scores from the year 2000, now talking about ones that didn't get nominated. Um, I'd like to briefly talk about a pretty brief score uh, that is Alan Silvestri's Castaway. This is indeed a very brief score. It's very judiciously spotted in the film. I believe on the Oscar promo, it only runs about 10 or 15 minutes or or something like that. But for that short length, I think it really conveys a mood more than anything else. It's very calm. It's very laid back. I I think it would make very good meditation music, frankly. And I think it fulfilled its role in the film as well. The decision not to have very much music in the movie at all, and not to have anything start, I believe, until after Tom Hanks manages to leave the island, other than a source cue that's used over the opening credits, kind of lends itself to the sense of isolation that you're supposed to feel like in solidarity with with the protagonist of the film. And so those decisions in in that spotting, I think, really lent the mood that they were going for. But even when the music does come in, it kind of shifts everything in a way that it couldn't have if music had been there all along. Scott, what do you think of this score? I really like the, like, five-minute track of this score. I I, I like the theme and I like the music. I like the mood it sets. I like the way it works. I think it's a really good piece of music. I listened to the Academy promo... And it's that five-minute track repeated three or four times. Like, there's a whole bunch of tracks with a whole bunch of track names from a whole bunch of different scenes, and it's the, like, practically same exact piece of music just repeated. The variations are subtle. I found that very disappointing. Like, you didn't need to release an Academy promo just to have the same track repeated five times. So, I, I have to dock at points on, like, variation and... Does it just repeat the theme, or does it use it in new and inventive ways to help accentuate each scene? This is repetition. You could really get away with just the one track. If the, if all you've got is one track of music, just have the one track you've got on the soundtrack disc. You don't, you don't need to copy and paste that track five times and call it a promo. So I found that aspect of it very disappointing. But I do like... I mean, for as brief as it is in the movie and as brief as it is on the CD, I do really like the track. 
what is another score that you liked from this year? Well, I don't have a ton from this year noted down. I mentioned before uh, Rachel Portman's score for The Legend of Bagger Vance. kind of a fan of that one like maybe the whole score isn't outstanding but i really really like the theme they keep coming back to in that one uh but we already sort of discussed that uh the only other one i would really want to point out is trevor rabin's score for remember the titans Speaking of media ventures, people, yeah. This was a surprise to me, because I had to go out and find this, like, on YouTube in order to listen to it, and I do like Trevor Rabin from some of his other work, and so I was I listened to several Trevor Rabin scores from 2000. He did Gone in 60 Seconds, I listened to The Sixth Day, and none of them were really any good, but I went out went and found a compilation of tracks on YouTube from Remember the Titans, and... This is really the, the good Rabin score from that year. I think the main theme is actually used a lot in, like, sports montages. You know, let's show you the story of this player at home and the burdens he's overcome. And it's, like, with Rudy and with that track from Forrest Gump of, like, inspiring sports-related music you can lay down under your story. I, th- I think it's sort of entered that realm. But it is a really good theme. And, 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 and it's used really well in this score, I thought. And inspiring sports stories is is one of those genres that tends to pull out, you know, really good scores from a variety of people. You know, it's kind of like sci-fi movies were for a while, um, and pirate scores at times. 
I don't believe that score got an official release. There was like one track on the song album or something. Uh, but there is a promo that has been floating around for a long time, yeah. And and it's it's perfectly compelling stuff. Yeah, like I said, I was... Because I'm a fan of Rabin's other work, I made sure to check out all the stuff he did in 2000. And, like, other than, like, one track from Gone in 60 Seconds, it was all very disappointing until I got to remember the Titans. Another score that I liked from this year, and one that actually in my group of friends in high school was, like, one of the only score albums that held any currency with them, was Requiem for a Dream by Clint Mansell. Cell is a composer that I run a little hot and cold with, but when he's hitting for me, I find his stuff just endlessly compelling. And he has a way of taking small motifs and small melodic bits and working them and working them and working them until they form these, like, sublime climaxes. The best example of that for me is The Fountain, which is one of my favorite scores ever. But I think he, he really does it in Requiem for a Dream as well with, you know, what you could call the main theme that recurs several times and did eventually become maybe more famous than its original incarnation when it was reworked into a, uh, you know, string ostinato-based action piece for the, uh, the Two Towers trailer shortly after this, and was then used in every trailer for a time. But the original versions from Requiem for a Dream, I think, like I said about some of the pieces from Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, really convey this sense of deep, deep longing. And when I first heard this as an apocalyptically depressed teenager, uh, they really reflected me, I felt. And so that's kind of stuck with me ever since. Like you said, there is the one really famous, really well-known, iconic track from this score. And so that's really all I knew of it going into listening to it here. And so I was kind of surprised when, like, right off the bat at the very start of the CD, it sounded like the build-up to that iconic piece. And I'm like, there's no way that's from track one. Like, I guess he must, like, just be building towards it and, like, build to it through the entire score, and that could be interesting to listen to. But no. Like, a minute and change into track one, it's the one singular famous iconic piece that everyone knows from this score. And then it's basically just repeated verbatim four more times. I wouldn't say verbatim. I would say almost verbatim. And other than those five instances of the one iconic piece of music everyone knows from this score, 
the whole thing kind of left me cold. There was nothing else there. Well, some, some of the other elements are a little grating on purpose, you know, for various elements of the movie. But just for those, those several instances of that theme, it kind of sticks with me. It was just like a lot of quick, short bursts of electronica crud. There, there are several of those, yeah. Interspersed with repetitions of the one iconic track. I mean, it's still a great track, but... The other score that I want to mention before we finish up here is something that surprisingly has become a little more relevant in the last couple of years and with a new film that's just come out. Uh, and that is Unbreakable by James Newton Howard. This was, of course, the second collaboration between James Newton Howard and M. Night Shyamalan, and it has, again, one reasonably iconic, I suppose it is now, melodic idea that it builds and builds to and eventually climaxes with toward the end of the film in a way that, again, I found very satisfying and was very surprised to hear when I saw M. Night Shyamalan's film Split, and suddenly toward the end of that film, so some of the uh, background identifiers of the Unbreakable score started to filter in, and I'm sitting there in the theater going, did they just track in Unbreakable? What is this? And then the big twist was revealed that, you know, surprise, Bruce Willis is here, and they play off with his theme from the end of Unbreakable. That one track at the end I did like, but I did not pick up on the building blocks that you're talking about. The whole rest of the score I just found very empty and lifeless. See, I found, knowing where it's headed, when I listened to it a second time, I could see pieces of it being introduced and pieces of it coming together. There's, I think, the weightlifting scene where there's a, a solo horn playing part of that theme, uh, most prominently. But all over the score, there are little pieces of it coming together. I didn't notice any hints of it until, like, the second to the last track, and I, it didn't actually get to, like, what I would consider the good part until, like, the second half of the last track. Maybe I'd have to listen to it several more times to try to, like, train myself to listen for it, but of the 14 tracks on the CD, 13 and a half of them were nothing. I do think it's something that rewards repeat listening in a way that some scores don't. Um, a lot of scores are either, I appreciate it the first time, or I don't. 
And that, I think, will do it for our whirlwind tour of the scores of the year 2000. Please join us in the future. We will be talking about the scores of 2018, because those Oscars are coming up, and we promise we'll get it before the Oscars this year. We're, we're trying, we're working hard, we're keeping our nose to the grindstone, we're going to keep working, keep chopping that wood, and we are going to get it done. Don't you agree, Scott? Are you going to chop that wood? What's that phrase? Your mouth is making promises your body can't cash. Thank you, Scott, for being with me. Thank you, listeners, for being with us. If you would like to contact us with a uh, question that you would like us to answer, uh, we like to do the advice hour sometimes when we can, but we need your questions. So please email us, spectacularadvice at gmail.com. If you would like to find me on the internet, you can find me at Twitter, well, I still have a Twitter account, or Tumblr, well, Tumblr still exists, or Instagram, if you would like to see pictures of my cat. In all of those places, I am Glenny Bun. Uh, you can probably find me on Facebook. You can email spectacularadvice at gmail.com if you want to reach me or Scott. Scott, that's the only way to reach you, huh? Actually, I have news for you and our listeners. What? Did you get Instagram? Can I see pictures of your cat? I have joined the social media revolution. I have a MySpace page. Excellent. What's your address? I believe if you search for Spectacular Scott, you will find my MySpace page. Am I in your top five? Are you on MySpace? How dare you? I don't entirely know how to check messages on there, but I mean, you can give it a shot. Well, I know where I'm going as soon as I get back to a computer. Listeners, I encourage you to give it a shot, too. Thank you. I'm amazed. I don't even know how to end the show. <laughs> this this is this is amazing. We'll see you next time. spectacularadvice at gmail.com if you would like to find time to go